Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. For those who care about climate change in Canada and around the world, Joe Biden's election victory in 2020 was a moment for optimism. He ran on an ambitious plan to rein in emissions, and he put powerful people in place to carry it out. But a divided Supreme Court just pushed those plans into peril. If Washington can't deliver on climate, it seems states and cities, some with populations larger than Canada, are ready to step up and step in. Farmers in this country are ready to step up too, ready to seed the country with best practices to help cut emissions in agriculture. But they say they can't do it without a little help from Ottawa to get started. And if you, like me, have learned more of the special language of meteorologists over this past year of weird weather, we've got climate change to thank for that. But we also owe gratitude to the people who take the time to explain what's happening and why, and three of them will do that a bit later on the show. Welcome to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. The United States is second only to China when it comes to top-emitting countries in the world. So when plans to cut those emissions are threatened, it's reason enough for the rest of the world to take notice. That's now happened. The U.S. Supreme Court has just issued a ruling that curtails the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to regulate emissions from the power sector. Now, here in Canada, when it comes to power generation, you might think about hydro or nuclear But in the U.S., 60% of electricity comes from coal and natural gas-fired plants. And that translates into roughly a third of the country's GHG emissions. The court's decision hamstrings the EPA in its critical work. And that's an approach that basically tells EPA, don't try anything too creative, don't try anything too novel, don't try anything that's going to have, you know, too big of an impact. That's Kirti Datla. She's the Director of Strategic Legal Advocacy with the organization Earth Justice. Now, there's a lot of legal language in the case, naturally. But Datla says at its heart, the ruling casts the agency's powers into doubt. So the EPA has kind of looming over it when it's considering what its options are and how it wants to write its new regulation. This sort of specter of the Supreme Court telling the agency you know, you're allowed to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from power plants, but if you go too far, we're going to rein you back in again. And so it's this sort of hazy, atmospheric, pun not intended, (laughs) uh, (laughs) signal from the court that's going to influence how the EPA writes its regulation. Here's the thing, though. The court's decision doesn't just affect the EPA. Other government agencies could also be constrained. And for climate change watchers, the important one here is the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission. It regulates the markets and protects investors. That agency has its own moves it wants to make on climate. 
It's preparing a rule to force public companies to become more transparent about the climate risks of their investments, emissions, plans to get to net zero, that sort of thing. And Datla says, yes, this ruling could affect that plan. Whenever that rule gets issued, people are going to challenge the rule and they're going to raise this decision and they're going to make arguments like the SEC hasn't regulated climate before, or the SEC hasn't done something like this before. And, you know, that's going to get litigated. Government lawyers argue that keeping investors informed is exactly what the SEC is supposed to do. Regardless, it all means more litigation and more resources dedicated to court battles instead of focusing on the battle to hold global warming to 1.5 degrees. But the EPA isn't giving up. Instead, it's planning some workarounds, a piecemeal approach, such as restricting other pollutants like mercury, soot, and nitrous oxide from coal plants that will also coincidentally cut emissions. Datla says there are other things the EPA can do as well. There's language in the court's opinion that suggests that it could set standards based on, for example, the availability and use of carbon capture and sequestration technology or other technologies that would lead to very substantial standards. And then there are other provisions of the Clean Air Act under which the EPA has dealt with greenhouse gas emissions, like, for example, regulation of greenhouse gas emissions from vehicles that this opinion doesn't say anything about. So the EPA still has levers. Other agencies still have levers. Now, the EPA had set a goal of completely eliminating emissions from power plants by 2035 before the ruling, and it still believes it can get there. But Dadla worries states that are resistant to restrictions will come calling at the Supreme Court again and again. You know, it's not like they're going to (laughs) stop because they won this case. And we've already seen it, for example, the EPA's newest greenhouse gas regulation for vehicles has been challenged in court and the coalition of conservative state attorneys general that have challenged that regulation have already indicated that they're going to raise this. U.S. President Joe Biden campaigned on an ambitious climate agenda, but he struggled to pass his climate investment bill. And now the Supreme Court is making the goals even harder to reach. Dadla hopes Biden will follow through on those campaign promises. I think that given the scale and urgency of the climate crisis, you know, his stated commitment to do everything he can to address it is is the one he should hopefully follow through on. And that includes taking this decision and not overreacting to it, right? There is still a lot that EPA can do under the provision that the Supreme Court was discussing. There's still a lot that EPA and other agencies can do on other fronts. And You know, I think it would be a problem if the reaction to this decision was just to be kind of scared of the courts and the Supreme Court. She points out there's plenty that is within the president's control that would affect the climate. And one she's watching closely is whether Biden allows more offshore oil and gas drilling. There was just a proposal put out to put out a five-year leasing plan for offshore leasing. And, you know, one option is to lease a lot and one option is not to lease. And so I think it's clear, at least to to me, which side of that the administration should fall on. So some of it's out of their hands. I completely agree, but a lot of it isn't. In the shadow of all of this are the court battles started by those advocating for more action on climate. Cases such as Juliana versus the United States. A group of young people want the court to affirm their fundamental right to a future free of climate chaos. 
That case is stalled, and Datla says the Supreme Court does seem to be issuing decisions that make it harder to respond to climate change. Still, she is steadfast. There's two ways to react to this Supreme Court. You can react by sort of assuming the worst and trying to look forward and, and say, what's the worst thing that they could do? And then to, to, to not even try in light of that. Or you could say, these are the decisions we have to work with. And this is the room we have. And we're going to do everything we can within that room. You know, I just don't think it's productive for anyone to pack it in and call it a day. Well, Leah Stokes certainly isn't calling it a day. She's an associate professor of climate and energy policy at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Leah, hello. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. We'll get to some of these solutions in a minute, but I just want to ask you, what was your reaction when the decision came down? Well, a lot of us who follow this closely knew that yet another bad case was going to be heard at the Supreme Court, and it was the last day that they were giving their decisions out. So we'd seen the Roe v. Wade decision, the gun decisions, lots of terrible decisions. And in some ways, it was another bad decision and I was upset about it, but it was not as bad as many of us feared. So in some ways, I felt also relief that now we had clarity and we could have the Biden administration start to move forward. Okay, but but if the EPA can't regulate emissions the way it planned to because of the ruling, What power do states like the one that you're in, California, have to do? Well, it's interesting because the EPA actually retains the vast majority of its authority. What this case was about was a rule under the Obama administration that does not exist. So they were really fighting with ghosts in many ways. That's not what the Biden administration was even planning on doing. So we still have lots of authority at the federal level. States can also be stepping up. And we had some good news. In recent weeks, California has passed a $54 billion budget on climate specifically. They are thinking about ramping up their clean energy targets and, you know, moving faster. So that's a really hopeful thing. So what does that say to you about what role states are prepared to play when it comes to cutting emissions in the country? I I mean, I hear what you're saying about about the ruling and what Biden can do. But given the obstacles in Washington, is it something that states just actually need to do? Absolutely. You know, California, if it was an economy, would be perhaps the fifth largest in the world. It's a very big place. It's um, larger than the entire population of Canada, right? So they have a really big ability to act. And Governor Newsom had a big budget surplus, and he decided to spend an enormous amount of that money on climate change. And that's the kind of leadership we need to be seeing from states across the country. And you're also seeing it from Jay Inslee in Washington State and Kathy Hochul in New York. They're promising also to accelerate their climate action in the wake of the Supreme Court decision. So I'm wondering if you see this as a national galvanizing movement. Absolutely. You know, Governor Inslee has been at the head of the pack when it comes to clean energy and climate action for decades, really, back when he was in Congress and, of course, when he ran for president on a climate platform. As governor of Washington state, he's always accelerating action. They had new building codes adopted recently, which is going to accelerate action. In addition, in New York State, Governor Hochul is really focusing on climate, too. There has been a very important law that was passed recently in New York that is accelerating their climate targets. So I think we are going to see some leading states continue to move the needle on climate change. What about states that aren't on board with climate action? How, how can they be brought along when, when there seems to be so much resistance? Well, that's where Congress is so important. 
There were $555 billion in climate and clean energy investments passed last year through the House, and they have been languishing in the Senate. I'm hopeful that in you know the weeks to come, we'll start to see some progress on that and that finally Congress will act by investing in climate change and clean energy. And that will make it easier for these laggard states to start to make progress on the climate issue because it will give them money to help them do the right thing. I wonder, though, do you ever are you ever concerned about the possibility that if if states like California become more and more aggressive about trying to crack down on industry, that an emissions intensive industry would just pick up and move its operations to a state that's less regulated? Yes, that has happened in small cases. In general, companies can't move that easily. But there have been a few companies that have moved their headquarters from California to Texas. So that does happen on the margins. But the trajectory overall is that the United States is cutting carbon pollution. President Biden has set a goal to cut carbon pollution in half by 2030. And based on current progress, we're going to be about a quarter of the way to that goal already. And if we see Congress act, if we see the Biden administration put out rules now that there's more clarity after that Supreme Court decision, we could see a lot more progress. So we have to accelerate emissions reductions. But that is the overall trend across the United States. Let's go down one more level to cities. Um, What impact could cities have on lowering emissions in the United States? Well, we've seen some hopeful action recently. Over 50 cities across California have passed rules that say that you can no longer build a new building like a house or an office building with gas in new construction. So, you know, natural gas, aka fossil gas, is a fossil fuel, and we need to stop putting it in buildings. And 50 cities in California have agreed with that. And New York City, of course, a huge city, did that as well in the fall of last year. Washington State has also led the way on this. And that's a really hopeful trend at the local level. Now, one of the Biden administration's recent moves is to speed up production of clean energy technology like solar and heat pumps through executive orders. Is that a tool you expect to see the president using more often? Absolutely. You know, the president invoked something called the Defense Production Act, which basically allows the president to put money towards really important technologies that are needed for national security. He said that those technologies include things like solar panels and heat pumps. Now, the challenge is that he probably needs more money in order to really get that executive action supercharged. And there's a question as to whether or not Congress will give him more money to do it. But the Biden administration has lots of executive authority that it can use to really start to cut emissions. And the Clean Air Act is a really key tool. Right. But you've also got the the looming midterm elections, which could lower um, Biden's ability to do things even more. If, for example, you get a Republican-controlled Senate and a Republican-controlled House. I'm wondering what you're thinking about that. Absolutely. On the legislative front, the window is rapidly closing to get those clean energy and climate investments across the finish line. But even if we have a terrible election in the fall, Biden can still use his executive authority to finalize rules to protect Americans from dangerous air pollution, whether that's mercury or smog or greenhouse gases. That is something that he has the ability to do regardless of how the midterms go. Now, you're Canadian and we've been looking at what's happening in the U.S., but when you cast your eyes back here at your homeland, what more do you think Canada should be doing to increase its own climate ambitions? 
Well, you know, President Biden has set a goal of reaching 100 percent clean power, clean electricity by 2035. And I think that that is something that Prime Minister Trudeau should really be taking seriously. We need to have a national clean electricity standard in Canada. And Canada is actually quite ahead of the curve because there's so much hydropower. There's some legacy nuclear, which, of course, does not emit carbon pollution. And we actually have a pretty clean electricity mix. So we need to be setting those kinds of ambitious goals. Why don't we see Canada, for example, say we want 100 percent clean power by 2035 and start making plans to get to 80 percent clean by 2030? That sounds like an ambitious target in a country where the grid goes north-south and not east-west. That's true. There's always been conversations about doing an east-west interconnection between Quebec and Ontario, for example. There are definitely some challenges and some provinces would have more trouble than others. But keep in mind all of those amazing hydropower resources in, for example, Quebec and British Columbia and even Ontario. You know, those provide a lot of resources that can really uh, match intermittent renewables like wind and solar. So we could be doing a lot more. And I think we really need to see that leadership out of Ottawa. Now, I, I know this isn't a competition um, because it's about the world <laughs> and what the world's going to be like. But given all you've been saying, it's, it, you make it sound like the United States is, is really going on all gears as much as it can. Does it stand to reason then that the United States will actually outperform Canada when it comes to cutting emissions? I hate to say it, but I think that's true. I mean, it's we still got to see what happens out of Congress in the coming month. But if they manage to pass a clean energy bill, I think that the United States really will be pulling ahead of Canada. And I think we should have a little friendly competition. <laughs> Canada's got to get serious about its greenhouse gas pollution. You know, it really has to start to cut carbon pollution in a serious way. Well, there's a challenge. Leah Stokes, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, send it out to listeners and see what they think. Leah Stokes, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me on. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. Summer is here, and that means beach time and barbecues, but it also means heat advisories and wildfire warnings. So summer's not quite as relaxing as it used to be, especially for our next guests here to chat about how forecasting is changing along with the climate are three people many of you know well. They're all meteorologists covering climate change for CBC. Johanna Wagstaff is based here in Vancouver. Christy Kleimanhaga is in Edmonton. She covers Alberta and Saskatchewan. And Ryan Snodden is based in Halifax, covering Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and sometimes Newfoundland. Hello, everyone. Hi. Hello. 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 Let's start off going east to west. Ryan, what, what has July been like for you so far? 
Uh, well, it's actually not been a bad start. We've had some sunshine and uh, some days of rain breaking things up, which is what we want to see. We, uh, over the last couple of years, have had, uh, yeah, summers that have been either too dry and uh, and then, uh, you know, periods that have been too wet but uh, so far so good this year with a little bit of uh, a little bit of sun a little bit of rain the farmers are happy the beachgoers are happy it's been a pretty good start to the summer here so far which is great okay you're in nova scotia how, how do you see it playing out the summer playing out for the rest of the atlantic provinces Well, it looks like across most of Atlantic Canada, we are expecting to see warmer than average temperatures uh, throughout this summer, which really shouldn't surprise us. That's what we've been seeing pretty much every year for more than the last decade. Uh, But, uh, you know, the signals are very strong for warmer than average temperatures, uh, certainly into the month of August and September in particular. Uh, July, uh, still, you know, perhaps a little closer to average, but it definitely looks like it's going to be another warmer than average summer here. Uh, In terms of precipitation, you know, that's always the tricky one to nail down. You know, precipitation perhaps a little bit above average as we work our way through through July and then tapering back to a little closer to normal for August and September. So uh, all in all, looks uh, looks pretty good. We just hope that that the warmer than average temperatures that that are coming down the pipeline uh, don't last too, too long and aren't too, too hot. Oh, Christy, this time last year was pretty dire for people in the prairies because a lot of them were under under drought conditions. What's happening this summer? Well, I mean, for the prairies, it's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure depending on where you are. Everything is so drastically different. We've got severe weather uh, that's been sparking up uh, throughout the end of June and into early July across um, you know, Saskatchewan and parts of Alberta. We've had incredibly wet conditions uh, in some parts of the prairies and still really dry. I mean, I'm looking at our June numbers for precipitation and um, Meadow Lake, so parts of northern Saskatchewan, seeing the second wettest on record with, you know, 175 millimeters of rain in the month of June. And then further south, Regina is in their third driest June on record with only 13 millimeters. So that that kind of division has really been the story of the summer. Well, then, so what does that mean for, for the farmers? Because we know Saskatchewan's the breadbasket of Canada. How is it going to be for them in the summer, given that patchiness and, and the, the great weather in some parts? Yeah, well, I mean, I spoke to a few farmers, one in Saskatchewan in kind of the southwest corner of Saskatchewan and one in central Alberta. And uh, when you talk about wildly different rainfalls, wildly different stories from the two of them. I mean, the farmer in Saskatchewan I spoke to said that the crops don't look as good as he would have expected because they did get a little rain, but it was just too late and it's still uh, still a little bit dry in many areas. So yields are not going to be as as good as he would have maybe hoped, especially on those early crops. Uh, Whereas in Alberta, I spoke with a farmer near Vermilion, Alberta, in central Saskatchewan, and she said the, the fields are looking great. They're looking really lush. So um, it's going to be something to watch as we get towards harvest this year, because I do feel like we will see very different results depending on where we are in the prairies because these rainfall amounts have been so um, varying. Right. And because of that, those kind of extremes, has, mm-hmm. has it changed or affected how people think or prepare things? Well, it's 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 a really tricky one because when you get this rain really fast, um, it's great for the water supply, of course, because it, it'll fill up those dugouts and things like that, um, but not really great for soil moisture. It tends to run off when you get it really, really quickly, uh, say, you know, 100 millimeters in, in a day as opposed to maybe two weeks or three weeks. So it's, I mean... You kind of have to go with the weather, but you, you kind of have to hope that the weather will cooperate. At least that's what I'm hearing from the farmers. 
Okay, Johanna, a very different end of June, beginning of July for mm. people here in the West. Uh, as we're t- as we are recording this today, I am wearing my raincoat and shivering. <laughs> we just passed the one year anniversary of the 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 heat, the heat dome. Looking yes. back now, what impact do you think that had on you? Oh, I think. Um... I think I thought I was going to get more of a break between uh, extreme weather, you know, coming out of of last year, the heat, the fires, the floods, uh, you know, the exceptional winter, the storm surge, and it has been a sputtering start to summer. And while I thought that would mean a bit of a break, you know, for myself and everyone across the province, of course, every weather extreme has its trickle down effect. So, you know, the farmers late start out here as well. And a lot of that is thanks to La Nina. Uh, that typically means uh, snowier and cooler winter for us. And that has just lingered right through the spring and now into the summer. But I am starting to see signs, early forecast models back in the spring were showing La Nina sort of waning and perhaps our hot and dry weather coming back in for the second half of July. And now I'm starting to see that show up in some of our long range forecast models. So maybe even as early as this weekend into early next week, that could be the start of our typically what is now typical hot and dry summer. So really seeing those contrasts Chrissy was talking about as well. In the south, we're still worried about flooding as our snowpack melts so late. Uh, anytime we get these big thunderstorm events or a low pressure system stall out, which has really been our story for months now, we're worried about flash flooding for those communities. Flood watches have been in place for weeks and weeks. But then in the north, uh, we're now under extreme fire danger. So we're starting to see sort of our, our two big buffer season extreme weather events pile on top of one another. I'm just curious though, that, Johanna, I mean, um, you think about climate change all the time, as do I, but I'm wondering if you think what what's happened here over the past year and as with the heat dome really being a, a severe kickoff to all of this do you think it affected how people think about climate change generally I do I absolutely do I you know see it I, I see I see and hear people talk about it in ways that I never have before and you know not just my family and friends and the, and the people that I interact with it's you know walking through the streets of Vancouver I hear people talking about it. And like I said, normally a cool, a cold summer would have everyone wishing for the heat, but people have really tempered that knowing what the alternative means. And, you know, even before June and July rolled around, uh, I had so many people wondering if there was going to be a heat dome this year, uh, if they should run out and get those air conditionings, invest in the heat pump. And even though it's been so cool, I haven't heard anyone complain about those investments, knowing that our future is going to be more of it. So absolutely, last year was was galvanizing for the climate change conversation. I've, I haven't seen it injected in daily conversation like this ever before. And Ryan, I'm wondering about you on, on the other coast. I mean, what, what happened out here is obviously remote from people there, but do you think the the events of the last year have had an effect on how people view climate change there absolutely there's one thing that uh, that i have really picked up on here over the last uh, few years i was of course in newfoundland and labrador for 10 years and then moved here uh, to halifax uh coming up four years now and one of the things that uh, folks here in the halifax area and across nova scotia and, and new brunswick tell me is that uh, they didn't used to need air conditioners here and boy heat pumps are, are flying off the shelves here now because the summers are, are getting warmer and it seems there's more more humid days where it's just sticky and and so folks are are folks that didn't need an air conditioner or wouldn't hear of uh, having an air, air conditioner uh 10 
15 years ago are, are now having them installed and or a heat pump unit uh, being installed as well because they need the relief from the heat um, in in the summer season and that's something that uh, here in the Maritimes um, you would never really uh, think of uh, say even even 10 15 certainly 20 years ago but there is that other thing that the people in the Maritimes watch warily and that is hurricane season um, mm-hmm. and because it, the hurricanes usually hit the the eastern seaboard of the United States and the Caribbean but sometimes they can spin out your way. Um, September is the peak of hurricane season. I'm wondering how the Atlantic region has been dealing with that steady increase in storms. Yeah, that's right. And it has been active. And based on the outlook, it appears that it's going to be yet another active season in the Atlantic. Now, it's been quiet so far, but uh, we, as you said, uh, know that uh, the peak of the season really isn't until the later parts of August into September and October. And, And one of the things that we're keeping an eye on are those warmer than average sea surface temperatures, which of course would help any storm uh, moving up the coastline to hold its strength a little bit longer. And you know, one of the things that we have been seeing is is as these storms come in and transition to post-tropical as they move into the northern latitudes, um, they're still packing quite a punch. And we've seen that with storm after storm. Dorian was of course one of the last ones that came in and really walloped uh, the Halifax area. And in fact, most of Nova Scotia, it wasn't uh, quite Juan, but it was certainly more widespread than Juan and, and did a ton of damage with power outages. And um, of course, Newfoundland with uh, with Igor. And we've, we've just been seeing, uh, um, if, if not, you know, uh, a full blown hurricane, then certainly a very strong post-tropical storm or the remnants of uh, of these uh, tropical storms which can bring flooding rains and um and uh and obviously some uh some uh less than ideal uh, situations when it comes to uh, some of those tropical downpours uh that do track through with the remnants of these storms and it's something that uh, we can at least count on one or two of these uh, at least the remnants of these storms tracking through and we keep our fingers crossed that uh, it's not uh yeah an actual category one or two storm like uh, dorian was Uh, just a few years ago. Let's hope. Uh, Christy, um, Johanna mentioned earlier El Nino and La Nina, and you've looked ahead to the fall. And what... what, uh what does that mean for people in the region? What, what did you find when you looked around into that? Well, I mean, yeah, Johanna mentioned it uh, a little bit earlier. Uh, cooler, wetter weather on the west is usually what you see with the La Nina year, and though we may see some wavering this summer. Um, a, a little while ago, the World Meteorological Organization indicated we could see a third winter of La Nina conditions It kind of developing and, and hitting us again this winter. So we'll have to watch and see how that pans out, because that, again, generally means cold, wet winters. Um, so it, it is is something interesting. It's a, it's a it's a rare phenomenon to get three winters in a row. Um, a triple dip La Nina, which sounds kind of like an ice cream cone, and maybe we won't be having many of those if we have a La Nina winter. Um, but it, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. It'll be only the third time since I think the fifties that we've had one of those. And of course, when we get into La Nina conditions, that's when you can get some really really intense uh, snowstorms, intense snow amounts, um, especially on the west coast, and some very very cold conditions uh, through the winter in the prairies, which of course we did see, which is, you know, such a juxtaposition with last summer's hot weather and then getting into a stretch of very, very cold conditions this January in the prairies. It was, it was, it was pretty, uh, it was quite the change, that's for sure. Joe, I, I have to ask you, because of these these labels that are coming out, El Nino, La Nina, yeah. and the names of a hurricane, there are all these terms that, that I've certainly been learning about for the last few years. And then I heard a, a new one from you 
just in the last few days, and that was something to do with Rex. Can you tell me about that? Yes. <laughs> the Rex block. You're right. You know, I I uh, can't argue with you. We are uh, more, I think, confident than ever that you know uh, people are interested in the science and the meteorology behind what's going on. So we're just uh, letting all our meteorological <laughs> terms fly. <laughs> but yes, the Rex block is uh, what's happening sort of right now across the West. It's when you get a low pressure system sitting south of a high pressure system and because air flows in opposite directions around these systems they sort of end up acting like cogs in a watch and sort of reinforce our positions in place so it's one of our blocking patterns in the atmosphere and anytime we talk about blocking pattern that means that we end up getting the same weather for days on end and we were in a blocking pattern last summer when we had the heat dome it's just the opposite effect uh, with the low pressure system it means days on end of unsettled weather, worries for flash flooding, the cool weather. But I've got to tell you, the upper end of this, that high pressure system, that's what's sitting over uh, the Yukon and the Northwest Territories. And right now, uh, you know, as, as we all say, things are fairly calm right now across the country. It's the North that's seen the extreme weather and they're basically in a heat dome. Uh, same setup that we saw, uh, but it's bringing days on end of 30 degree temperatures to communities who will see 30 degree uh, conditions, especially with, you know, 23 hours of daylight this time of the year, uh, but not for four days. That's where we're at right now. It could, you know, we could be breaking all time records for the uh, longevity of this kind of heat. So there's extreme weather happening somewhere right now mm-hmm. at, at, at any given time across the country. And as you say, the impact of, of that kind of heat and that sun so many hours of the day could have some really, really difficult consequences for that part of Canada. Definitely. And fire danger is at extreme right now in the north. It's been so dry and it's also unsettled. It's um, sometimes we can get lightning strikes with a high pressure, uh, which sounds counterintuitive, but it's sort of on the boundary between these two systems. So those lightning strikes have been sparking up dozens and dozens of fires. And we're now starting to see impact to community smoke and visibility, evacuation uh, alerts, highway closures. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately, eerily similar to this situation in BC last year, it's just farther north right now. Let's just talk a little bit more about about your role in all of this, all three of you. Uh, Ryan, you've been doing this kind of work for over a decade. How, How has your role, what you do, shifted and changed over time? Well, I think, yeah, our, our roles are, are always changing and certainly, you know, more of uh, social media presence, online presence, uh, that obviously continues to grow. Um, but uh, obviously in terms of, um, you know, weather and climate, I think uh, we're, our jobs are, are changing certainly is, is more uh, in terms of uh, being just better explainers and communicators. Um, especially when it comes to climate change and especially when it comes to extreme weather. Uh, you know, we talked about this uh, last time we had a chat. Uh, there's, a, there's a fine line to walk between uh, being, um, you know, f- fear monger, uh, for lack of a better term, and, and just, uh, but also relaying uh, messages that need to be relayed, especially when there's, a, when there's a big storm coming up the coastline that's showing a situation that is 
potentially life-threatening, um, it's a fine line to walk between, um, you know, yeah. scaring folks, uh, but also keeping them up to date with uh, with what's about to come and, and to how to be prepared for it. Christy, what's your view on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's kind of the key is with all of these extreme weather events that seem to be happening more and more frequently, and you're not, and we're not wrong, they are happening more frequently. There's just this thirst for knowledge on where climate change fits in. Is everything because of climate change or is nothing or what what is that answer and i that's how my role has evolved um, almost completely stepping away from more day-to-day weather and towards um, looking at climate change and how it affects um, the prairies and Canada in particular on a more local level, diving into what this overall global change that we're seeing means for us and 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 where it does tie in. So it's interesting when you're looking at your, your weather through the years and you're looking at, you know, droughts and wildfire and flooding rains, all of which, of course, have that climate change connection and then other things that are maybe a little bit more difficult to uh, find that connection or know what that connection is things like tornadoes where it's just such a small scale thing that we're still learning about how climate change plays into that so that's really been um, the change for me is 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 looking more towards how do we explain these how do we give that context of climate change with regards to these extreme events that are happening more and more frequently. Johanna, I want to give you a chance to talk about something you've been working on recently. What on earth is a show about solutions? You've been working on some stories about solutions as well, and that kind of balances out talking about the climate disasters all the time. Tell me about that. Yes, you're right. There, There is a balance there. And for so long, I think, and I... I still believe, you know, as, as Ryan said, it's a fine line, but we have to continue to, uh, to, to give the facts when it comes to how much worse, uh, this is going to get, but, um, you know, to be able to tell the stories of individuals and communities that are finding ways to, to fight climate change in the, in their own, uh, small steps, I think, uh, that can be a nice balance to, the other side of it and and hopefully you know inspire other people and individuals to to take their own small steps and i know sometimes it's hard when it's such a massive problem and uh, especially when we're living it every day as meteorologists to, to see you know just how much uh worse severe weather is is going to get uh e- even even if we were to turn off the uh the fossil fuel tap right now um to be able to balance that with inspiring stories of individuals has been so rewarding and it seems like every time we reach out and find a story of a small business or a person who's actively trying to make change in their in their neighborhood, it opens doors to a dozen more who are also trying to do the same thing. And that's giving me so much more uh, hope and positivity than, uh, than I mean, I was hoping I would get some, but um, <laughs> this is this has really been what I needed. <laughs> uh, yeah, I find the same thing on the program. Do you want to yeah. do you want to give your project a plug of where people can can find it? Oh yeah, thanks, yeah. Laura. You're welcome. It's called, uh, the- <laughs> <laughs> the Climate Changers, and uh, you can listen to it on uh, Wednesdays on our afternoon uh, regional radio shows, and hopefully we'll we'll put it together into a little podcast uh, just in time for the fall. So I'll keep you posted. Okay, and I and I wish that all three of you could have some kind of weather effect named after you, the you know the Christy Johanna Ryan effect. <laughs> M- maybe just saying it, it will become so because you certainly have that effect talking to me here. But I want to thank you all for for joining me today and talking about this again. No problem. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Laura. Bye-bye. Bye.
We've heard from farmers on the show before. They've told us how climate change is taking a toll on their livelihoods, and it's putting our food security at risk. Rav Singh is an organic farmer in Caledon, Ontario. Climate change is making things a lot less predictable, and it's really increasing the risk for crop loss and crop failure. But the one climate change effect that I really want to point out is the effect that climate change is having on farmers and farm workers. So these are people who are in the field every day doing the actual hands-on farming. It's not uncommon now for people to be working out in the field for multiple days in a row during a heat wave for seven to nine hours with temperatures above 35, 40 um, and nighttime temperatures maybe not even dipping below 30 when nighttime temperatures for farmers are really important because that's the time of the day where our bodies cool down, but we're losing that. And that's a lot of stress to put on somebody's body. I'm finding every year there are more and more days where I have to wake up at four in the morning to get to the farm by five o'clock to make sure I get in my field work before 11 or 12 when the heat of the day really starts in. That's Rav Singh in Caledon, Ontario, talking about the problems a warming planet is causing for people in agriculture. Now a group of Canadian farmers is asking the federal government to act and help people move towards more climate-friendly farming practices. Brent Preston is the director of Farmers for Climate Solutions. He's also a farmer himself. He owns an organic farm near the village of Cremor in Ontario. Hello. Hi, Laura. Brent, I just wanted to ask you, tell me how the weather has been so far this year for you for growing? Uh, The weather has been okay. It's been a bit cool. We haven't had a lot of heat and it's been a bit drier than ideal. But looking at the the sort of weather that other farmers have been having this spring, you know, I'm not going to complain. Yeah. What kinds of of things are you growing there? Uh, We grow vegetables. So primarily cut salads for um, food service customers. And then Uh, We have greenhouses with cucumbers as well. When you were listening to Rav Singh just now, talking about her experience, I'm wondering what you were thinking. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've certainly experienced that. We grow leafy greens on our farm. And one of the reasons that we chose to go into that area of agriculture is because our farm is up on top of the Niagara Escarpment. We're relatively high uh, altitude in southern Ontario, and it's cool here. It tends to be um, cool right through the summer, so we can grow those kind of crops that like the cool weather. So 15 years ago, we made those kind of decisions on what crops to grow when we started farming, but now we're seeing the sort of weather conditions that Rav's talking about, and it's making it more difficult in the middle of the summer for us to grow uh, the kind of vegetables that we're set up to grow. So so yeah, it's, it's it takes a toll on humans, and it also takes a toll on our animals and on our, our crops that we grow. So your group, Farmers for Climate Solutions, has been pushing the federal government to consider climate when it, it's creating policy for agriculture. Why is that a priority? Well, first of all, because agriculture is on the front lines. Our industry probably feels the effects of climate change as much or more than anyone else. We see climate change as the single biggest threat to the health of the Canadian agricultural industry. Um, Also, agriculture is an important source of greenhouse gas emissions. We account for somewhere around 12% of total emissions in Canada. So if we're going to meet our national targets of a 30% reduction in emissions by 2030 and net zero by 2050, then agriculture has to do its part. So the reason we've come together 
and ask for action is because we're part of the problem. We can be part of the solution. And uh, if we don't succeed in bringing climate change under control, we're going to be the ones who really feel the brunt. And in, in the name of asking for action, you put, put together a proposal for the federal government because it's right now working on a new funding agreement to support agriculture. It does that every five years. So can you give us a quick overview of your proposal, what you think the government could do to maybe give farmers an incentive to reduce emissions? Sure. So we looked for practices that could be put in place on farms right now that are proven. They don't rely on experimental technology or, you know, on further research. There are things that we know reduce emissions that are ready to go right now and that are practical from a farmer perspective. So we've identified 19 management practices on farms ranging from nitrogen management to care for livestock to manure management that can immediately drive down emissions. And so what we're asking for is the federal and provincial governments to put in place incentives to help farmers adopt those practices, because a lot of those practices can be expensive to adopt. They involve risk on the part of farmers because they're trying something new. And we'd like to see government support to help farmers make that transition and start reducing the the carbon footprint of their production. Uh, just to fill out your list, you also included um, uh, practices you could use in soil and wetland and tree management. And I'm wondering which of the practices do you undertake on your own farm? We try to implement a lot of the practices that we're recommending on our farm. So, for example, uh, nitrogen management. Nitrogen fertilizer is the fastest growing source of emissions in Canadian agriculture. Nitrogen fertilizer can turn into nitrous oxide, which is a very powerful greenhouse gas. So we get as much of our nitrogen as possible from biological sources rather than from chemical nitrogen. So we grow crops that fix nitrogen and add nitrogen to the soil. We um, graze cattle on our land when we're not growing vegetables and they add manure, which adds nitrogen to the soil. We also, we've planted um, over 10,000 trees on our farm anywhere that we're not producing food. And that's a great way to draw down carbon and sequester carbon in the soil out of the atmosphere. And we've seen that these kind of measures can be expensive in the short term, but over the long term, they can provide really good financial benefits to our farm as well. Well, I guess that leads to the next question. I mean, you've done this all yourself because you, one, thought it was the right thing to do, and two, now you're saving money from it. Why do other farmers need incentives? Because often the the financial reward of many of these practices doesn't occur right away. And it can often take three or four or five years before you start realizing net economic benefits from the practice. But some of the practices are just a straight expense. There's no benefit to the farmer. So something like uh, in manure management, um, the research shows that if you cover liquid manure systems and capture the methane gas that is being emitted, you can use that gas for energy, prevent it from going into the atmosphere, and it has a really big emissions reduction impact. But it's an expensive thing for farmers to undertake, and they don't really get uh, any direct economic benefit from it. Well, do you have any idea how much it would cost for the government to, to do this, to help out farmers to adopt these practices? The proposals that we're putting forward would result in about a 14% reduction in emissions from Canadian agriculture over the next five years and would also result in uh, over 6 million tons of additional carbon sequestration in agricultural soils every year. 
And for that level of mitigation, the price tag we came up with is, was around $2 billion over the course of the next five years. That's a big number. It's a lot of money, but it really pales in comparison to the cost of inaction. So last year when we saw heat domes and you know severe drought on the prairies and flooding in BC, the um, combined claims just for crop insurance last year were $3.7 billion. I hear you, but there, there are a lot of industries in this country that are struggling to cope with climate change and maybe trying to reduce their emissions. So why should Ottawa make agriculture a priority for money? Because the emissions reduction potential in agriculture is very, very cost effective. So it's going to cost about $40 for each ton of CO2 equivalent uh, reduction in emissions. And that's a very, very competitive number that, you know, the, the federal minimum cost on carbon is going to be $170 a ton in 2030. And the abatement costs in uh, other industries are much higher. Um, and all of these measures have additional benefits beyond the climate benefits. So when you increase the number of trees on the agricultural landscape or protect wetlands on agricultural lands, you're not only mitigating climate change, you're also increasing biodiversity. You're uh, reducing erosion and uh, nutrient runoff from farms. You're improving the local water cycle and leading to cleaner water and healthier ecosystems around farms. You also have in your presentation, you, you want government policy to support the diverse range of people who work in agriculture, and by that meaning women, Black and Indigenous farmers, young farmers. What do you think would help those groups in particular? This is a really important point because a lot of these groups have been poorly served by agricultural policy in the past and have generally been, you know, not given the the things that are necessary to thrive in our sector. A lot of the incentive programs that exist in agriculture now are a cost share program where a farmer will incur the cost of a new practice or a new uh, piece of machinery, and then can apply to have a portion of that cost uh, refunded by the government. But um, the upfront expense of putting the whole amount for that improvement out there can be a barrier to a lot of farmers. So we're asking for an advanced payment program so that equity-deserving farmers don't have to front all the money uh, upfront. Uh, and we also think that there needs to be increased support for the organizations that represent equity-deserving farmers, because those organizations are going to be um, in the best place to help farmers in their communities to adopt climate-friendly practices. Now, we spoke with a farmer named Dan Petker on our show a couple of years ago, and he'd been trying climate-friendly practices such as cover cropping and crop rotation. I just want you to listen to what he said about his experience with regenerative farming. I'm willing to take on a certain amount of cost or, or less income home for the betterment of this soil because it's a long-term play. Now, if I could get compensated somehow, that'd be wonderful. But right now, we don't live in a world or an economy that wants to. You'd take it all on if there was perhaps some sort of incentive or subsidy given for you to do it? I would push much harder. It just would make things a little bit simpler, a little bit easier, because the crops that I grow are sold on a world market. So my neighbor can be growing completely conventional, and I'm going to try regen, but it all gets dumped into the same boat, and we all get the same price. So it has to be everybody on board or nobody. Yeah, or, or, or at least or companies have to start like financially rewarding some of these approaches. So maybe a halfway point to an organic designation. 
So there again, Brent, you heard Dan Petker talking to me about incentives. Are incentives in and of themselves enough or, or does the government need to do more? Well, I think incentives would go a long way, We're, uh, but I think that that all sectors of the food system need to play a role. I agree that companies that are buying agricultural products need to do a better job of asking for better practices on the farm and rewarding farmers when those practices are adopted. That, you know, if the market can pay a premium for products that are produced in a way that produce less GHGs or are, are better for the environment, then that's going to be a powerful incentive for farmers for sure. But, you know, the the sort of central piece that we need is a government policy that says our goal is to reduce emissions in agriculture. Our plan is to get as many farmers across this country as possible adopting the practices that we know lead to better outcomes in terms of emissions and resilience. And we need to put resources in place in order to ensure that farmers are able to take on those practices because the the benefits are uh, enjoyed by all Canadians. When When farmers reduce their emissions, have increased biodiversity, have healthier functioning ecosystems on their farms, have healthier watersheds. So public spending needs to be part of the equation. Right. And the, and so is would the best bet to be have government level the playing field, so to speak? Yeah, absolutely. And, and we also need to talk about leveling the playing field with the rest of the world, because many of the commodities that we're growing in Canada are traded on the international market. And our competitors in the U.S. and the EU are spending way more money than we are on these kind of programs. So the research we've done shows that the U.S. is spending 13 times more than Canada on a per acre basis on environmental programs in agriculture. And the EU is spending more than 70 times more. So if a big multinational food company is looking for ingredients that have a lower GHG profile, if they can't find it in Canada, they're going to be able to find it in a country that has better support for their farmers. Now, you say that these practices would reduce GHG emissions from Canadian farms by 10 million tons of CO2 equivalent per year. That's a 14% reduction, as you said, from current levels. Even if these practices are widely adopted in the next few years, that still leaves a long way to go. So what else is needed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a first step. This is to get us going in the right direction. And and one thing I think is important to realize is that current projections that the government has put out shows agriculture only reducing emissions by 1% to 2030. Right now, agriculture is the only sector in Canada that is not projected to significantly reduce emissions in the next decade. And so the, the plan that we're putting forward is a big departure from that view, but you're right, it's not enough. And so as we go forward, we're also going to need to look for new techniques and new technology and, and uh, practices based on new research to come online in order to continue to push those numbers down. Brent Preston, I wish you happy harvests for the rest of the season. Thank you very much for talking to us. Thanks so much, Laura. That is it for us this week. Our show was produced by associate producer Danielle Piper and producer Rachel Sanders. Rachel also did double duty this week as engineer. Yay, Rachel. What on earth includes producers Molly Siegel and Fliss McGregor? Our senior producer is Manisha Janakaram. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.